Welcome. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this year's COS Lecture. COS Lecture is sponsored by Economica, the journal of the Department of Economics. And uh, this is a very special COS Lecture indeed, because we're very lucky to have here Penny Goldberg, who is a professor at Yale and currently the chief economist at the World Bank. Um, I'm not going to tell you everything that Penny has done, because otherwise it would take me 90 minutes, and that would be 90 minutes. You don't want to listen to me, you want to listen to her. But I couldn't resist taking a peek through the slides that she has sent in, and they are fantastic. I'm not going to spoil you the surprise of what she's going to talk about, but I often lament, and my colleagues know this, that economics becomes so specialized that we all research our own little topic until we know nearly everything about every trivial detail. And so often what that means is that we lose out on the big picture. Now Penny is going to talk about some very surprising and very insightful issues that emerge when you know a lot about different fields and you bring them together. And that's a real treat because it's very rare these days. So without further ado, I leave the floor to Penny. And you have about an hour, an hour and a quarter, and then we have discussion. So thank you very much, uh, Oriana, for this very generous introduction and, and also for the advertisement of the talk. Uh, and thank you for inviting me. So that's, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here, but on top of this, this invitation, uh, gave me an opportunity to, to collect my thoughts on some topics that I've been working on for the past few years. And uh, I also plan to work even more on uh, at the World Bank. And these are topics uh, regarding in, in informality in developing countries and the contrast with the current gig economy and digital platforms uh, in developed countries. Uh, let me make sure I master the technology here. Okay, so this is um, the course lecture, so let me uh, start by putting what I'm going to talk about in the context of uh, Coase's seminal work. Um, and of course, Coase made several contributions, but one of the papers he's best known for is The Nature of the Firm that was published in Economica in 1937. And in that work, Coase asked the fundamental question of why we have firms uh, in an economy. So why do businesses find it optimal to organize their activities in firms as opposed to um, uh, contracting with uh, individual agents, so self-employed people who contract uh, with one another upon need? And uh, as you probably all know, Coase's answer relied on the concept of transactions costs. And transactions costs are here to be uh, interpreted very broadly as costs that include information and communication costs, search costs, bargaining costs, and also the costs of putting together a contract and enforcing a contract. So uh, 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 the theory that Ronald Coase delivered explained why we have firms, but it also at the same time it also explained the size of the firm. And you know, in, in the example he gave, he pointed out that firms in Detroit would grow as long as it was optimal for them. It was cost effective for them to produce goods 
um, in-house as opposed to outsourcing production to other firms. So it was a theory that delivered an explanation both of why we have firms as well as how large firms are. So that's in terms of background, a reminder of what Coase did. And if we think, if we contrast Coase to the reality of today, there are two observations that jump out. The one is, uh, the, the one comes from developing countries. And one fact that's quite striking in developing countries is the absence of firms, especially in low-income countries. So in the poorest countries, there is often no distinction between households and firms. Uh, we hardly have any firms the way we, we understand them in more advanced economies. Even in those countries where we have firms, they tend to be small, and I will come back to that point uh, later, and they never grow. Most of them are informal. So in some sense, what we observe in developing countries seem to... Uh, to um, be outside the scope of the questions that Coase asked many years ago in the context of the United States. At the same time, if we look at the world as a whole, and that includes now advanced economies, we are faced with a, the changing nature of firms as a result of big technological advancements. And what I have in mind here is the drastic reductions in transactions costs, mainly information and communications costs, um, due to technology, and also the, the various uh, improvements, the various advancements in international integration. So as a result of all these uh, changes, we, we've seen transactions costs uh, being dramatically reduced all over the world. And one implication of this change is that the firms now have much wider boundaries. So we see firms outsourcing more and more tasks to the market. Uh, in many advanced economies, but also in developing countries, uh, we are faced with the emergence of the gig economy and digital platforms. Um, as I will explain later, some of the features of this gig economy are very similar to what we observe actually in, in uh, developing countries. And overall, we see not only a change in the nature of firms, in the boundaries of firms, but also a change in the nature of work. So the main thesis that I'm going to put forward in this talk is that these recent developments that have played out mostly in the last five years represent a, a, an unexpected convergence uh, between developed and developing countries when it comes to the way firms operate, but also to the way um, uh, we think about informal relationships, uh, with important implications regarding the nature of firms and the nature of work. Okay. So here is a roadmap for this talk. So. Um, I will start by talking a little bit about informality in developing countries, and I will define informality in a moment. So I will, I will describe the main facts regarding informality and the consequences, and understanding the consequences is important if we want to understand why this is something we care about in the first place. And then I will describe briefly some approaches that have been suggested towards reducing informality, and I will discuss what seems to be effective and what's not. Um, and then I will talk about the more recent developments I just described, the technological developments and the changing firm boundaries, the emergence of the gig economies, and I will contrast, contrast those to what we observe about informality in developing countries. And then I will talk towards the end of the talk about the implications of these uh, 
convergence, as I call it, regarding the nature of the work, social protection, but also uh, about growth and growth uh, for developing countries and the view of informality. Okay, so that's, that's the overview. Uh, so let me start with uh, uh, some definitions, what do we mean by informality? So uh, there are two ways to think about informality. First, you can define it in terms of firms, informal firms. And we usually think of informal firms as being those firms that do not register with tax authorities. So they are, in other words, they are invisible to governments. So the concept of, invisib of invisibility is very important uh, when we think about informal firms. Uh, there is another definition that focuses on workers. So we think of informal workers as workers who are not covered by labor regulation, so they don't have formal contracts, they're not permanent workers. Um, and as a result, they don't have any benefits, they don't have social security, and they don't have um, uh, any job security. So needless to say that many people will tell you that uh, in many cases, um, an agent, so a worker or a firm, can be formal with respect to some features and informal with others. The actual reality of informality is extremely complex, so we could easily spend a full lecture debating the exact definition of informality, so I don't want to get caught up in definitions and semantics. This is roughly what, what, um, what informality, what the experience of informality corresponds to. Uh, one note I want to make at the outset is that uh, many countries, especially uh, developing countries, are characterized by the presence of a very large self-employed sector, and usually the statistics we have include the self-employed in the, in the definition of the informal sector. Okay. So uh, let me now um, uh, proceed by giving you some basic facts about informality. So again, for the moment, I'm, I'm focusing on developing countries. Uh, so the first is that informality or self-employment, I will often refer to self-employment for the simple reason that self-employment is easier to measure. By definition, because informality is invisible, it's very hard to measure. We have some statistics, we have some measures. They are noisy, and uh, you know, perhaps I can discuss after the lecture how we get uh, to these measures and what the issues are. But uh, so self-employment provides an alternative. Uh, so the, the first fact, the first important fact, is that informality and self-employment are negatively correlated with development. Uh, I would say this is a fact that's uncontroversial. This is a graph that comes from a paper by Laporta and Schleifer in the JEP in 2014, and it's actually based on uh, World Bank data. So on the horizontal axis, you have the GDP per capita, at purchasing power parity, and on the, on the vertical axis, uh, you have the percentage of labor force uh, uh, that, that is self-employed. And you can see uh, that there is clearly a negative correlation between the two. So the more advanced the, the country is, the more developed it is, the lower the percentage of those who are self-employed. Okay, so this is fact one. Other measures of informality, so more general measures that don't rely on self-employment, show the same correlation. Uh, here is another graph also based on, on uh, World Bank data that conveys the same picture. Um, so the, the purple bar on the left corresponds to low-income countries, and you can see that there is a range regarding the percentage of people who have informal employment. So this graph shows informal employment as opposed to self-employment, so it's a more general category. 
In some countries, like Nepal, the informality is as high as 98%. So that means 98% of the population are employed in an informal job. In India, by the way, it's around 90%. In Ethiopia, it's 36%. If you go to lower middle income countries, again, there is a range, but overall it's very high. Um, so in Vietnam, for example, it's 75%. Uh, and as you go to the upper middle income countries, the percentage employed uh, in the informal sector is lower, but it's still, there is still a range, and in some countries it's still very high. Uh, needless to say that these categories are themselves quite noisy, so, uh, uh, but, but just to give you an idea, uh, Mexico, so it's a country that, uh, that, that's upper middle income, uh, uh, it, it still has 57% uh, informality, Paraguay 71%. So informality tends to be a salient feature uh, of the developing world. Uh, fact, so, so this is perhaps not surprising. This is something that most of you might have suspected. The second fact is more surprising. And the second fact is that the informality and self-employment have, have been stable over time, despite the fact that we've seen rapid global economic growth and despite the fact that there have been many improvements in the regulatory environment. And there are overall still very high in emerging and developing uh, economies. Uh, so just to show you some pictures that make this point very clear. So this shows self-employment over time by income group. And you'll see that these lines are essentially flat. So in case you cannot see it, the first year in this graph is 1991. The last year is 2018. And so the line at the, the lowest line, as you would expect, corresponds to the high-income countries. That's where informality is very low and it's been stable over time. But if you look at the very top, the orange line corresponds to low-income countries. There is no change. Um, you see some change in upper-middle-income countries. So there are, there, there are some cases where informality has been reduced, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, Bulgaria, for example. But overall, you see hardly any change. And I'll come back to that again and again. Um, this is by region, so the same graph, but by, by region, showing self-employment. Again, I focus on self-employment because this is easier to measure, but if you get some uh, measures of informality, they show the same pattern. Again, you see stability in almost every area, in every region of the world, except for East Asia and Pacific. This is the only line that shows um, a downward trend. But this, this is actually quite surprising because uh, we've seen such, because many, many people's expectation was that as economies grow as, they, uh, grow, as they develop, informality by itself is going to disappear. This is certainly a claim that was made by Laporta and Schleifer in the paper I just mentioned, and we clearly don't see that. Uh, you know, if you focus on one particular country, so um, the, the, the recent experience in India is uh, very interesting. So the average growth in the last decade has been around 7%, in some years much higher. Informality remains in India around 90%. Uh, there is a recent paper by the World Bank, it's, it's still a, a World Bank working paper, that actually claims that the manufacturing employment growth in India is entirely driven by the increase in the informal sector. And this is, uh, this is the graph that goes along with this claim. So if you look at this graph, the two lines at the bottom, you know, the lines that, um, that uh, do not show any upward trend correspond to the formal sector. So the, the uh, blue line, the blue dots, are the formal tradables, and the red line with the dots corresponds to the formal non-tradables. The green one, 
the, so the green line that corresponds, uh, that shows the upward trend, corresponds to uh, informal tradable. So the, it's the informal manufacturing sector that shows an increase in employment. So that's quite surprising because this is not what most of us would have expected. Um, around 2005, you see at the same time a decrease in informal non-tradables. But uh, essentially in manufacturing, all the growth comes from the informal sector in employment. It does not come from the formal sector. Uh, that's again, that is again something that goes against expectations. Uh, a third fact that I think is uh, well known, uh, nevertheless it's worth pointing out, is that uh, informal firms in developing countries um, are very small. Uh, as has been pointed out many times before, they get born, some firms get born. They never die, but they never grow either. They remain small forever. Uh, so there is a large literature on this fact, and I'm going to come back to that. But this is a picture that comes from another paper uh, in the Journal of Economic Perspectives in the JPE by Shant Olken in 2014 also. And I'm not sure how much you can see, but you can see the general pattern. And what this graph shows is the distribution of firm size as measured by the number of workers for three countries. So the top row corresponds to India, the second one is Indonesia, and the bottom row corresponds to Mexico. And so if you take the first panel, you know, the first column, it shows the size distribution in bins of um, uh, 50. So the one takeaway uh, from this graph immediately, from the first row, is that most firms have uh, very small sizes. They are concentrated uh, around very small sizes. Now, because the concentration is so high at very small sizes, you may not be able to see the patterns very clearly. So what this graph does is in the next uh, panels, in the next rows, it, um, it focuses more narrowly on beans of, let's say, 10 uh, to, to 50, 50 to 100, and so on. And for each of these cases, you can see that the firms tend to be always concentrated around very small sizes. Okay, so uh, the the firms uh, tend to be very small, uh, very small in developing countries. Uh, fact number four, and again, this is something that that's been documented, is that women tend to be overrepresented in the informal sector. Just to give you. Uh, two graphs that were lately, that were very recently produced in uh, the World Bank, is if you look at Laos, if you if you look at the first um, at the first uh, 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 chart, it shows female ownership by formal versus informal firms. Informal firms are the purple ones, and female ownership is substantially larger for informal firms. Now, firms, uh, informal firms don't uh, only have a female owner, they also employ more women. So women tend, when we talk about, about female employment, most of this employment tends to be in the informal sector uh, in developing countries, so to the extent that we are worried about things such empowerment of women or uh, participation of women in the labor force, where essentially at this point in time we are still talking about women being, being employed by the informal sector. Uh, the same is true, by the way, by Mozambique. Again, these are uh, data that were just produced and they show this is not, uh, you know, these patterns are not specific to one particular country. And uh, finally, there is um, 
some work at the World Bank that shows um, that would lead me to the next issue, which is what, what are the consequences of informality. Um, many informal firms tend to face harsher conditions than formal firms. So, for example, they tend to face higher water and power outages. And it turns out water shortages tend to be more of a problem than power outages. Uh, this has partly to do with the fact that many informal uh, firms are still found in the, uh, in the sector of non-tradables, and their water may be less of an issue. Um, so uh, uh, this is you know, the, the graph from Lao that um, shows this pattern. If you, uh, so the, on the left side, you have uh, the percentage of firms that experience power outages in a typical month. So the red part refers to informal firms. The dark blue uh, refers to formal firms. Um, and on the, right, on the right side, you have the same chart, but for water outages, not for power outages. And again, you can see that the informal firms experience a higher percentage of, of uh, or there's a higher percentage of firms that experience these outages. But again, what this graph suggests is that the water problem, the water outages uh, tend to be much more of a problem for these firms than power outages. Uh, now, uh, at this point, you may be wondering why is this something we care about in the first place? And that leads me to the next, uh, uh, to the next part of the talk on which I'm going to spend quite a bit of time, which is what are the consequences of informality and why is this considered a big issue in development? So in general, informal firms or informal employment uh, are considered an anathema to development uh, because of three main reasons. Uh, first, as I pointed out before, informal firms tend to be very small, and small size often implies inefficiency. Second, uh, because these firms or these employment relationships are invisible to governments, it means that uh, they avoid taxation, so, and that in turn means that there is not enough fiscal capacity to finance the provision of public goods. And finally, from the workers' point of view, these jobs do not offer security or benefits. Uh, but at the same time, there is another side to the story, and this side is that informality may de facto provide more flexibility in countries and markets that are highly regulated. And this can be particularly valuable when economies are faced with adverse shocks. So let me talk about these issues um, in more detail. So let me start very briefly with the issue of taxation, because this is a standard argument you hear. And first, let me point out that if you look at the tax revenues uh, by income group for different, you know, for different countries, so. Um, one trend that one one fact that clearly emerges is that um, tax revenues as a percentage of GDP tend to be much lower in low-income countries compared to high-income countries. So again, in these graphs, you have this percentage from 1980 to 2015 for three groups of countries. Uh, at the very bottom with yellow, you have the low-income countries. In the middle with red, you have middle-income countries at the top. In blue, you have the high-income countries. And this is the non-resource tax revenue as, percent, as percentage of GDP. You see that the tax revenue is much higher in developed economies. There are many reasons for that, but one of the, one of the main reasons is that in high-income countries, 
you can tax the formal sector. And, of course, one response to this argument is immediately that the informal firms are so small that you wouldn't be able to, to, to raise much tax revenue by taxing these firms anyway. That uh, to the extent that low-income countries want to raise tax revenues, they should be focusing on the large firms, on the multinationals, rather than on the small firms. And this is valid, but as I will point out in a minute, the issue is not just what you can raise right now. The issue is that these firms that are small, because of, of uh, the current incentives, never grow to become large. So eff effectively, you never get to develop a tax base that you can potentially tax because you never have these large firms that you could tax. Maybe there are one, two multinationals in some developing countries, but in most in most low-income countries, there is a complete absence of large firms. So this argument is in principle right. Yes, you, you should be taxing the large firms, but you cannot tax them when they don't exist, and they're not going to exist if the small firms never get to grow. So this is fundamentally the problem. The problem is not just that you cannot raise tax revenue right now by taxing the small. The problem is that the small never get to, be, to become large, which leads me to... Uh, the main issue that I'm going to focus next, so uh, informality and efficiency. So are informal firms necessarily inefficient? Uh, um, and is that really an impediment to growth? And second, is there also a positive side to informality? So can informality act as a buffer in times of, uh, in difficult times for an economy? And if that's the case, how should we be thinking about informality in developing countries? So let me start with the first part, informality and inefficiency. And so the basic question here is, are all small informal firms less efficient than formal firms? And as such, an impediment to growth. And the answer, very briefly, is that the evidence is mixed. So it's not a clear yes or no. Perhaps not surprisingly, the answer depends on context and on many factors. Uh, but here is a brief overview of what the evidence suggests so far. So uh, Jim Tybout in 2000 wrote a piece in the Journal of Economic Literature, and his answer to this question was a clear no. So um, Tybout pointed out that there was no clear evidence at, the, at that time that the dispersion of firm productivity was higher for developing countries than for developed countries. Uh, there was no evidence that small firms were less efficient. And basically the point that he made is that, yes, these firms tend to be very small, but actually their scale is optimal given the markets in which they operate. So in many of these markets, there is not enough demand. Uh, and given the demand they face, their scale is actually appropriate. So this was in 2000. In last year, 2018, there was a more recent paper by uh, Forster and Rosenzweig, not on firms, but on farms, but in many developing countries, the only firms are the farms. And they make a similar point, actually a, a more nuanced point. Their point, by the, by the point of Foster and Rosenzweig, is that the very small farms are actually efficient. The middle-sized farms are uh, actually uh, inefficient. And then it's only the really, uh, and then the very large firms these are super efficient. These are more efficient than the small ones. But of course, the very small, the very large farms are not observed in developing countries. They are only observed in advanced economies. And what was their explanation? So their explanation has to do very much with, you know, Coase's uh, original theory. It's all, um, it all has to do with the labor transactions costs. So in agricultural markets, labor transactions costs are very high. 
because of the seasonality of the of the production, because production is because the actions that a farmer has to undertake are sequential. So. Um, if you operate at very small scale, then you don't need to hire outside labor. You rely on family labor, and that makes you very efficient. If you try to operate at a larger scale, then you have to hire outside labor, and high labor transactions costs make this operation very inefficient until you reach a larger scale, in which case you can actually amortize these transaction costs over a larger scale of output. And finally, if you are very large, then you, in addition to labor, you can also employ machines, and that makes you super efficient. So um, their answer is actually that, that, yes, it's true that the very small ones, the very small farms are efficient, but once you go beyond uh, family labor, beyond family-run farms, then there is actually evidence that these firms are inefficient. Um, there is, on the other side of the argument, there is a very large literature that uh, claims that, uh, that, that these informal firms are inefficient and the root cause of low growth in developing countries. And let me just mention briefly some of the main contributors to this, to this literature. There is the paper I just mentioned by Laporta and Schleifer and then the work by Shen Klinow and, and the follow-up literature that uh, pointed out that you can use productivity dispersion as a measure of efficiency. This, by the way, is highly controversial, but if you accept that, we do see higher productivity dispersion in many developing countries. Um, uh, there is a lot of work that followed the patterns of uh, growth for small firms in developing countries, and they documented what I said before, these small firms never grow, they didn't have low productivity, so they are inefficient in that sense, but they never die, they never grow either. Uh, there is another paper by Shane Tolkien, the paper I just mentioned again in the JEL at 2014, and this paper shows that the average product of capital and labor tends to be lower in small firms. Uh, now, of course, average is not the same as marginal, but they say if we make the assumption that average and marginal move together, then this would point, this, this would suggest that actually uh, small firms are not constrained by, let's say, credit constraints or uh, any other constraints. It, they're actually less efficient. Um, and this is also a point that was reinforced by some recent work by, by uh, Harrison and Rontenberg that exploited the recent changes, policy changes in India regarding the treatment of um, small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, there is also a very large literature in trade on heterogeneous firms, and one point that this literature makes again and again is that the large firms tend to be more efficient. Again, efficient, I would say, in the revenue sense. So there is always the question, are these firms, uh, uh, do these firms appear to be more efficient because they have higher revenue productivities, which also may be due to markups, or is it to efficiency? But at any rate, there is a lot of evidence that these large firms tend to do better according to many performance measures. And there is also work uh, done actually in the World Bank by Fernandez, Freund, and Pierola, recent work using um, a database on exports of firms in many different countries that shows that it's not just that large firms are more efficient when it comes to exports, but exports of developing countries are driven by a very small number of superstar firms. So 1% of the top firms in most countries, especially developing countries, they account for almost the entire uh, exports, the entire export revenues of developing countries. So 
taken together, all this evidence would suggest that the inefficiency issue is um, actually uh, important. This is another graph that comes from uh, uh, Laporta and Schleifer, also from the JEL paper. And again, this graph suggests that, that there are big uh, performance differences between formal and informal firms. Uh, so uh, the, the graph shows the ratio of the value added by informal firms to value added by formal firms. And the median is 0.15. Okay, so it's very, very low. Um, for some countries, it's as low as 0.01. Okay, so, so in terms of value added, these firms operate really at a, at a fraction of what formal firms uh, do. Uh, more generally, you can, we can relate you know, this, this, um, this question of whether informal firms are efficient or not to, um, to three views of informal firms that the literature had put forward. Um, the first view is that, um, which is a view advanced by Laporte and Schleifer, for example, among others, is that um, these firms are survivors. They are too small and inefficient. Uh, so informality is a means of survival for most of these uh, firms or agents. And this is the so-called, leads to the so-called dual view of development. So there, are, there is duality in the sense that there is a very number, large number of these survivors, as I showed you before. And then there is a very small number of big firms that are actually super efficient and drive um, exports in these countries. If you remember the graphs I showed you about Shea and Tolkien, they would argue that, uh, yes, all these firms are survivors, but there is no duality really because these larger firms in many countries do not even exist. So it's all about these very small survivors. Um, then there's a second view that uh, suggests that many of these firms, not all of them, are so-called parasites. This is actually a term that, that came from a McKinsey report on this issue. And essentially what this view says is, what this view suggests is that many informal firms could actually break even as formal firms. They could make money. But they choose not to do so because this way they avoid paying taxes. So this way they are more profitable. So therefore they are called parasites. And finally, there is also a third view that some people characterize as being the romantic view of development. And this view views the small firms, the informal firms, as being held back entrepreneurs. So this view suggests that informal firms would actually formalize, they would operate as formal firms if they did not face high costs of entry and regulation. And so they are held back by regulation. And this is actually a view that was advanced by De Soto uh, in Peru. And so uh, the reason these three views are important is because they have very different implications about how you think about informality. So, for example, uh, if you think that firms are parasites, then the, the obvious uh, way to deal with them is to, to try to avoid tax evasion, to try to, uh, to uh, beef up enforcement to make sure that no firm can operate as informal firms. If you think the firms are survivors, maybe you, you let them be because otherwise if you eliminated them, you would create a big social problem. If you think these firms are held back entrepreneurs, then you want to eliminate regulation because you want to unleash entrepreneurial talent. So what view you adopt is going to be very important in how you deal with the issue of informality and that, that's why I said at the beginning what the consequences of informality are for efficiency is actually crucial when it comes to the question 
of how do we think and how do we deal with, with informality. And so, um, uh, as I said, Laporte and Schleifer claimed that, uh, that the data, the data they showed, support the dual view. Shent Olken claimed there is no view entirely supported by the data. And there is a recent paper, actually two papers, by Gabriel Ulissea that focus on Brazil that show that actually all three types coexist in a country like Brazil. Um, they simply, the, the, the phenomenon of informality reflects that the fact that we have heterogeneous firms that optimally respond to the institutional environment, but it's not necessarily the case that we, one firm, that all firms in an economy fall into a particular category. And uh, so, so here are the, the graphs that support this view, and again, it's important to keep in mind here that all this is produced for one particular country, Brazil, which may not be representative of all developing, not may, is not representative of all developing countries, so it's clear it's certainly not representative of small low-income countries in Africa. But for Brazil, uh, what, what Ulissea shows is, if you look at this graph, the, on the left you have the value added, the log of value added per worker, for informal and formal firms, and on the right, you have the size uh, measured, the, the log, uh, measured by the log revenues. And the one thing I want you to take away from these graphs is that, that there is overlap in these distributions. So it's not the case that the distributions for formal firms are entirely to the left of the informal firms. There is some overlap, which means there are actually some informal firms that are at least as efficient as formal firms. And another way, and perhaps more convincing way to make the same point is uh, this graph that, that I will explain in a moment. This, again, comes from another paper by Ulissea in the AER on informal firms, again in Brazil. And what this graph does the, shows is the following. So the thick black line shows, uh, so on the horizontal axis you have firms pre-entry productivity signal, so some measure of firm's productivity. On the vertical axis, you have the firm's value function net of entry. Okay, so a firm is going to enter a market if this um, uh, value uh, is above zero. So the, the dark, the thick black line shows the firms, a firm's value net, it's always net of entry costs, if this firm operates in the formal sector. Okay. The red line shows the same value function if the firm operates in the informal sector. Okay. And what you can see is that for a very large, large range of productivity, the red line lies above the black line. What does this mean is that when the productivity of the firm is not very high, the firm will choose to operate as an informal firm. This intuitively makes sense because if you're an informal firm, you do not pay taxes, you do not pay payroll taxes, you don't face regulation costs, and even the, the, the entry costs um, are lower. For very high productivity firms, this is not the case. Why? Because if you are a high productivity firm and you formalize, then you have access to credit markets, then you have access to export markets. In order to export in developing countries, you need to be formal, you need to be registered. So if you're informal, you cannot buy construction by design, you cannot participate in exports. So high productivity firms will find it beneficial to formalize. Okay? So now he conducts the, the following thought experiment. He says, suppose now we removed the, um, 
the informal sector. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. Suppose that we we uh, removed uh, regulation, so all these costs that the Soto uh, postulated hold back entrepreneurs. What would the value function look like for firms that want to formalize? And that's the dotted line. And the dotted line, the dotted black line, lies above the dark black line because now the regulation costs have been removed. So, of course, the value net of entry becomes higher. But then you can see what happens in this case. There's still a very large range for which the dotted line is below the red line. So this is the range over which firms will still find it beneficial to remain informal. And if you look carefully at this graph, you'll see that there are three, uh, you can partition the range of this value function into three segments. So up to V1, that's the part where the, the value, the firm's value, net of entry costs, would be negative if it were formal. Okay, so the dotted line is below the zero line. So these are the survivors. So these are firms that cannot enter as formal ones because if they enter as formal ones, they cannot um, cover their costs. They would be driven out of the market. So these are the survivors, right? Then between V1 and V2, you have firms for which the dotted line lies above the zero line. So that means these firms are making profits, right? So if these firms formalized, they would be making profits. They would be paying taxes, but they would still be profitable. Still, they would make more money if they didn't pay taxes. So therefore, the red line, so the, the value, ne the value uh, that the, these uh, firms would have if they operated as informal is higher than the value if they operated as formal. So these are the parasites. These are the McKinsey parasites because the reason these firms don't formalize is simply to, to save on taxes. And then there is the third range that's between V2 and V3 that shows the range that corresponds to the Soto's view. So these are firms that once you remove the regulation costs, choose to formalize. So they switch from the informal to the formal sector. But actually, if you look, and again, I will remind you this is all for Brazil, if you look at the relative percentages of these firms, so the survivors are about 49% of all firms. The parasites are about 42% of all firms. And the, the held back entrepreneurs are only 9%. So my main takeaway from this analysis is that there is strong evidence, again, for Brazil at least, that the survivors, the share of survivors is very large. There is strong evidence that, these, that the share of the held back entrepreneurs is very small. And there is evidence that the share of parasites is quite substantial. And this is actually something that surprised me because it, it actually suggests that in the end, tax evasion or tax avoidance is a very important motive in a country like Brazil for remaining informal. So it's not simply survival. Uh, so that would suggest uh, uh, that, that uh, strict enforcement may be the way to go. Now, uh, I also posed another question at the beginning um, that is related to, to a more positive interpretation of informality, and this is informality as a buffer. And so the question here is whether informality provides firms and workers with more flexibility when 
about when a negative shock hits the economy. And the, the answer to this question is that the evidence today suggests, yes, that's the case. And again, most of the evidence here comes from Brazil. Again, it, that, that's no coincidence because Brazil is a country with a very large informal sector, but also a country that has great data on informality. Uh, many people will point out the limitations of this data, but still they are much better than what we have for the rest of the world. And so if you exploit the Brazilian trade liberalization, the answer tends to be yes. And let me show you, you know, some graphs to see what, what the picture is. And again, the picture is quite surprising. Um, so this, this comes from a paper by um, uh, De Carneiro and Kovac that exploits the Brazilian trade liberalization of the, uh, of the early 90s. And, uh, you know, in this liberalization had uh, uh, differential impacts across regions in Brazil. So some regions were exposed more to tariff reductions than others. So they exploit these differential tariff reductions across space to identify the effects of the trade liberalization. So let me just say the paper is well identified. And what they show is the blue line shows the employment in the formal sector as a result of these tariff reductions, and the red line shows the employment in the, in the formal, I'm sorry, the earnings in the formal sector. And so most people's expectation would have been that once the tariffs hit, you know, once uh, firms and workers are faced with more import competition, employment will go down or earnings will go down, but sooner or later the economy will adjust. So eventually these trends that are negative, they will be reversed and will go back to a new steady state. Um, as you can see, this is not the case. Actually, the picture that emerges from these graphs is very bleak. What happens is employment in the formal sector keeps going down until it stabilizes many years later to a lower level. And the same true is about earnings. And here in this figure, I didn't put pre-trends, but actually the pre-trends, you can show them they go in the opposite direction. So, so the evidence is really compelling but what happens here, and that's very much against expectations, is there is a negative demand shock that hits the economy um, in the form of, uh, of reduction in tariffs. So that means more, um, I call it a, a negative demand shock because the, these regional economies are faced with more import competition and the result is a decline in formal employment and formal earnings. Uh, what happens though uh, is after so now I'll show you the, the rest with a regression, same paper. Um, what they show in this paper is that eventually when things stabilize after um, about 20 years, the, the, the extra labor is absorbed by the informal sector. So that's what these regressions show. Um, so the, the, the first row, the first panel, panel A, shows non-employment. And uh, so what you see is what you saw in the previous graph. Between 1991 and 2000, uh, non-employment non uh, goes up. Okay, so unemployment goes up significantly. But then if you look over the entire period, eventually it stabilizes. You know, if eventually um, you know, the, the, the unemployment change disappears over the course of 20 years. Now, at this point, you may be surprised because I just showed you in the previous graph that actually formal employment doesn't bounce back. So what happens here? So the second row tells you the story. If you look at the informal sector, what happens is there is a, an increase in informality immediately after the tariff liberalization, but a substantially larger increase in the long run after 20 years. So essentially all these workers who were displaced from the, from the formal sector get absorbed by the informal sector. Um, so this 
kind of message is reinforced by another paper by Ponting and Lisser, same trade liberalization. So same experiment, same thought experiment, except they add another dimension to this analysis, analysis namely they also have enforcement, uh, they have information about enforcement across different regions. So regions differ in terms of uh, their enforcement intensity, and of course enforcement intensity is itself endogenous, and they deal with that in the paper. But again, what this graph shows is that as you move towards more enforcement, so as you move towards the right in this graph, enforcement becomes more intense. And so what are the effects of trade opening if you have strict enforcement? If you have strict enforcement, you have a big increase in unemployment. If you have low enforcement of uh, informality, then unemployment increases by much less. And another way to make this point is by looking at informality. Again, you get, you get as you would expect, the opposite pattern when enforcement is lax, informality increases a lot, and that means it acts as a buffer, it absorbs the unemployed. If enforcement is strict towards the right, then informality cannot play this role because we enforce the rules, so then uh, people remain unemployed. So again, this evidence taken together suggests that, that you, informality does play this, this uh, role as a buffer. So to sum up, you know, what, what I've shown you so far is that there is a lot of evidence that suggests that informal firms tend to be less efficient than formal firms, and these are mainly the survivors. But then the thinking is if we drive those out of the market through enforcement, then we would, we would be promoting growth, but this would create a big social problem. Uh, there are many informal firms that are shown, at least for the case of Brazil, to be as efficient as formal firms, but they remain informal to evade taxes, so these are the parasites, and in this case enforcement would be desirable because these firms would be forced to pay taxes. Uh, but informality at the same time does serve as a buffer, and so the question is, if you're a policymaker in this country, is how do you think about informality, and, and uh, should, you, should you try to eliminate it, uh, or should you try to embrace it? And that's very much also related to the question of how governments deal, to, deal with uh, small and medium-sized uh, firms. So in general, economists tend to emphasize the benefits of size, of economies of scale, as I pointed out, there is a lot of work that emphasizes the benefits of large firms and large exporters, especially in developing countries. But policymakers tend to be uh, very much focused in their efforts in promoting the small and medium-sized <coughs> enterprises. So there seems to be a tension between the two approaches. And given what I've shown you so far, you can see where this tension may come from. So, so these small firms tend to be inefficient, but they do play the role of the buffer when the economy is hit with a negative shock. Plus, you have all the survivors who, whom you may not want to eliminate. So in order to, to, to address all these questions, we decided with, with some of the people I mentioned before, so among, uh, with, with Rafael Di Carneiro and Gabriel Ulisse, and also with Costas McGear, to, to develop a, a framework, an integrated framework for thinking about this issue. So what we did in a, in a paper that's uh, a working paper um, still, is we develop a structural equilibrium model of a small open economy that features um, the following. So it, it features heterogeneous firms that choose to operate in the informal sector uh, or the formal sector. If they operate in the informal sector, they can potentially be caught and then they have to pay penalties. There are certain matching frictions in labor markets. Uh, there is a rich institutional setting. Uh, so. The model features minimum wages, hiring and firing costs, payroll and revenue taxes, 
uh, and government enforcement. And importantly, the, the regulations, so the taxes and the labor market regulations are imperfectly enforced and that can give rise to informality. So this is, all these assumptions were motivated, all these features were motivated by the reality in Brazil. So then we estimate this model using several data sources, so including matched employer-employee data from formal and informal firms and workers in Brazil. And um, as I said earlier, Brazil has the great advantage of having some of the best data on informality in terms of what's available and also in terms of the quality of the data. And then once we estimate the model, we use it to perform a series of counterfactual uh, simulations that show the different effects of policies. And essentially the policies we consider are the following. So I will mention them briefly. So we consider what would the effects be of trade liberalization. And so what we find, uh, I'll tell you why we do that, because the, the hope has been all along that if you make sure that economies grow, and of course you may ask the question, how do we ensure that? That's a different question. But, but if economies grow and they develop, uh, there was this claim that informality would disappear by itself. And one way that you help an economy grow is by opening up to trade, by liberalizing. So there was this expectation that if these economies open up to trade, informality is going to disappear. And you might think this is intuitive because what trade does, and there is a lot of work that shows that, it shifts resources towards bigger firms, and bigger firms tend to be formal. So when we do this counterfactual, we, so we, we liberalize this economy, what we find is actually that there are large effects on trade flows and exchange rates, but there are really very small effects on allocations, informality, productivity, and real income. And uh, this is consistent with something that a lot of trade papers find, namely that, that the effects of trade liberalizations, the static effects of trade liberalizations tend to be very small. The effects on trade flows may be large, but actually the static effects are very small. Moreover, this counterfactual is very much consistent with what I showed you at the beginning, namely that we've had a world that is becoming more and more global. There has been tremendous liberalization, tremendous globalization, and yet informality remains very high in most developing countries. So the results of these counterfactuals are pretty much consistent with, with casual empirics. A second counterfactual is to eradicate informality. So we say, suppose that, that enforcement was so strict that the, the informal sector were eliminated. And then what we find is that you have huge increases in welfare. Um, so, and all these gains, uh, all these increases come from gains in productivity. There are increases in unemployment, so the model does allow for unemployment. But these increases in unemployment tend to be very small compared to the gains you get from productivity uh, changes. And then we hit also the economy with various productivity shocks. And what we find is that if you hit the economy with a, neg a negative productivity shock, the effect on welfare and unemployment is larger in a case where you don't have the informal sector. And again, this is consistent with what I showed you before um, about the case of Brazil, that, that the informal sector does play this role of buffer. But at the same time, if we hit this economy with a positive productivity shock, with something good happening, we don't see informality being reduced. And the reason is better economic conditions allow low productivity firms to operate and to enter and survive. So if you take these counterfactuals together, um, uh, I would say they, they, they tend to replicate the main message that the first graphs I showed you um, 
conveyed, namely that despite growth and trade liberalization, we don't see a decrease in informality. And that's, that's, that's what these counterfactual simulations seem to suggest as well, that the only way you get informality to be reduced is through enforcement. But at the same time, there is also a second message that this elimination of informality, despite informality acting as a buffer, tends to produce very large gains, very large productivity gains. And just to be clear, there are two main caveats to this exercise. So the first is, I'm talking here about the steady state, not about transitional dynamics. And the dynamics can be very important here. So until you reach the steady state where you have higher productivity, you could have, in the meantime, you could have high unemployment. And also, second, the results may be specific to Brazil or middle-income countries in the sense that uh, there is a, a, a sizable uh, portion of firms that tend to have high productivity. Uh, again, consistent with what Ulissea showed, you have a lot of parasite in this, parasites in this economy, and if you have parasites, what you want to do is eliminate them. Okay. But that brings us to the question, how do we eliminate them? Right? So you can think of two potential ways to go about it, and one is going to focus on domestic policies and the other focuses on trade. And uh, what do I mean by domestic? So as I pointed out, the, the, the first uh, way that comes to mind is to force the parasites to formalize. Uh, so that's very good for the parasites because it's going to increase, implies that the efficiency in the economy is going to increase. But at the same time, enforcement is also going to eliminate the survivors, and that can potentially have a very high social and welfare cost. Uh, second, um, you may engage in policies that support small businesses. So the idea would be to try to subsidize them, as many countries do. But if, this if these firms are inefficient, and there is a lot of evidence that many of them are, this is going to contribute to, to inefficiency. The, the third, uh, the third uh, kind of policies that are very much in spirit with COSIS, emphasis uh, on transactions cost, is to try to uh, reduce entry costs to the formal sector and other regulation costs. Uh, so uh, let me first point out that in these simulations that we said it in the, in the graph I showed you, this would make uh, uh, very little difference. Uh, moreover, we have a lot of evidence from experiments in developing countries that suggest that, um, this, uh, that many attempts, many efforts to reduce regulation costs, to reduce entry costs to the formal sector did not produce the results one might expect. And so what I'm thinking uh, of here is again an experiment in Brazil by the Andrade, Henrique, Brun, and Mackenzie in 2013, uh, where they, um, they had a control group. They had a control group and three different treatments. One treatment uh, was to, um, to reduce registration, to, to, to make registration cost zero uh, for the treatment group and also provide an accountant and some help with managing the business. Then there was a second treatment that uh, was to, stand, to send an inspector to make sure the firm <laughs> registered and paid taxes. And then the, the third treatment was to tell the firm that they were sending an inspector to a neighboring firm. And what they found is that the only thing that worked in this case was the, the direct enforcement, so sending the inspector to the firm. So based on this experiment, again, you would conclude that these firms were parasites, right? The only thing that worked was the enforcement. 
Uh, I also have to say this, looking at these results and the evidence went very much against my own priors. So uh, uh, this is not something I expected to find. There was another study on Sri Lanka by the Mel McKenzie and Woodruff uh, where they conducted a similar experiment. And what they found there is that they didn't experiment with enforcement, but the only thing that induced firms to formalize was paying them directly uh, two months of profit, so increasing artificially their revenues, and that caused them to, to formalize. So, uh, you know, this, this idea of uh, reducing entry costs or registration costs, this idea that uh, this, this type of uh, policy change would induce to less informality uh, has, not found, has not found support in the evidence so far. Um, what people have not experimented with yet is, you know, reducing the, the bureaucratic costs, reducing taxes. And that seems in principle promising, but that has not, we don't have any, any evidence. Um, so that, that, that's about domestic uh, interventions. The second type of intervention concerns trade. So, so there, as I said before, there is the, the, the premise that intensified comp competition and growth of exports would lead to a reallocation of resources towards larger firms that tend to be formal. Um, our, our simulations suggest otherwise, but there's also some direct evidence on traded informality, and this evidence is very mixed. So I've done some work with Nina Pouching on Colombia and Brazil. That was a case of a unilateral uh, trade liberalization, uh, so Mercosur. Uh, we did not find any effects on, of the trade liberalization on informality in Brazil. We did find effects on, on informality in Colombia, but only prior to a labor market reform. Uh, very interestingly, there is a paper by McKay and Pouchnik on Vietnam, and Vietnam is a very different story. So Vietnam uh, liberalized vis-a-vis -vis the United States, and it was an export liberalization. So they reduced export restrictions. So in contrast to Brazil or Colombia that experienced a surge in imports as a result of the trade reforms, Vietnam experienced a large in increase in exports um, to the United States and also to other countries, but primarily to the United States. And so what they document is that there was a rise in exports, and as a result of that, uh, big structural transformations, so resources move towards the formal sector. Many people leave employment in, in, in informal agricultural activities and move to formal manufacturing. So this is, you know, the dream of a development economist, and they do find evidence for that in Vietnam, but as I said earlier, there is no evidence of that in Colombia or Brazil. The paper I just mentioned by uh, Di Carnero and Kovac does find effects on Brazil on a different episode of trade, unilateral trade liberalization, but this is an import uh, liberalization. So this is a case where Brazil reduces barriers to imports. So as a result, they experience this surge in imports. And there, what they document is an increase in informality. So there, you know, not only don't they find what people found, what McKeg and Pouchnik found in Vietnam, but actually they find exactly the opposite, that the trade liberalization need uh, leads to an increase in informality. So it seems it really makes a difference, at least in the short run, where trade is not necessarily balanced, whether you increase exports or imports. Uh, uh, so in, uh, finally, you know, to conclude on this, uh, uh, in the counterfactual simulations I, I mentioned in, in our paper, we also experiment with, with different uh, uh, ways of, uh, of uh, eliminating informality. I already mentioned that we get a huge productivity boost out of 
eliminating informality, but how do you eliminate informality? So one way to try to do it is by uh, reducing labor regulations and uh, bureaucracy. So through the lens of the model, we don't see any in the model, in the counterfactual simulations, we don't find this to be effective. Um, then we try to combine uh, a reduction in labor regulations plus more trade openness, plus more growth. Again, we don't find any effects on informality or productivity or growth. And finally, when we increase the penalty to infinity, so when we say it's infinitely expensive to operate as informal firms because what the government can do is confiscate your revenues, that's when we see a big effect. So where does this leave us? You know, what's the summary if you uh, uh, take all this together? Uh, it seems that eliminating informality is associated with very big productivity and welfare gains. And this is despite the fact that informality acts, a, acts as a buffer. Uh, opening up to trade, as I said, or deregulation, uh, growth, they do not reduce informality by themselves. And this is very much consistent with the experience of the past decades. And so strict enforcement seems worthwhile despite the social cost of eliminating uh, survivors. Now, how do we eliminate informality? So in the model I said how we do it, we make the penalty infinite. How do you do it in practice? So in practice, enforcement is very difficult, partly because there is a huge political cost to governments. But um, I think it's fair to say that technology, and in particular digitization, may offer a new solution because the transition to a digital economy and to, to digital payments, to online payments, eventually will make everything visible. So one of the most important defining features of informality, the feature of invisibility, is going to disappear by design if you have online payments. But that brings me to the next part of the talk, that while technology in principle can completely eliminate informality by making everything visible. So for example, a country like India is, is almost, is, is, is becoming an entirely digital economy. So in principle, you could actually capture every transaction. If, if you want it, you could eliminate informality. It's another question if, if governments have the guts to do it. But at the same time, we also see another development, which is what I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk, that technology is also changing the nature of firms and work, and that may lead us to, to uh, reassess the traditional view of informality as being a source of inefficiency and uh, low growth. So uh, now let me come to the second part, technology and changing firm boundaries, and what I'm going to say now applies not only to developing countries, but perhaps primarily to advanced economies, although these trends are also now, they are, they're also being uh, um, salient in many developing countries. Um, so, so digital technologies allow firms these days to scale up and down very quickly, and as a result, they're, they're changing uh, firm boundaries. Um, so we see many uh, new firms evolving and growing very fast. Uh, uh, they, they start as local startups, and they very rapidly uh, grow to be very large uh, in terms of revenues, often without having employees or tangible assets. So this is the so-called uh, economy that's characterized by scale without mass, as uh, some economists put it. Uh, 
so what individuals and firms need in order to participate in this type of economy is essentially a broadband connection. This is all they need. Uh, and this way they can access goods and also services online. And uh, the point I want to make is that this economy is um, has some, some common features with the informality I just described, but at the same time, it's an economy that may bring opportunity to many people who live in uh, industrialized countries, who do not live in, in, in advanced economies, or even within industrialized countries, they may live in areas that are not industrialized. So uh, here is you know, one graph that comes from the World Development Report of the World Bank last year in 19. Uh, so the, the title of this World Development Report was The, the Changing uh, Nature of Work. And it shows how firms have evolved over time. And it makes this point that I just uh, made that uh, firms, due to uh, digitization, due to new technology, grow much faster, reaching millions of consumers at a much faster pace. So just to contrast two extreme cases, if you look at the orange line at the very bottom, it shows the growth path, the growth pattern of IKEA which was founded in 1943. So until 1973, you don't see any expansion outside Scandinavia. So in 73, that's the first store outside Scandinavia. And then uh, by 2017, at the very end, you can see that IKEA has grown. There are many more stores. So by 2017, you have 415 IKEA stores in 49 different countries. And by the way, the way IKEA, as you know, operates, it also has uh, relationships with many local suppliers. So it operates more uh, like a global firm than a firm in the coast uh, sense. Now contrast this development path, this growth path, with a growth path of uh, Taobao. So this is the yellow line. Um, uh, it's founded in 2003, and by 2017, it has evolved to having 9 million online merchants covering 220 countries. So the, the growth pattern is substantially faster, and that applies, of course, not only to Taobao, but to many other uh, firms. Uh, another way to make this point that the, the technology is fundamentally changing the nature of firms uh, again, most of us are familiar with, with firms such as Uber or Airbnb or, or TaskRabbit from advanced economies, but we see the very same patterns also in many developing countries. And what this graph does, it contrasts the number of agents or the number of firms that operate under the old business model against the, the ones that operate in this new digital technology as digital platforms. So at... Uh, on the left, uh, you see with blue how many uh, branches, how many agents uh, uh, use M-Pesa in Kenya. And then the, the little orange uh, bar on the right shows the branches of the KCB bank group, which is the traditional way of doing bank business in Kenya. So you can see the very stark difference between the two. In the middle, you can see Airbnb versus Marriott and Hilton, so this is the number of rooms worldwide uh, the, in millions that are, that, that are available. And again, you can see that Airbnb has surpassed Marriott and Hilton. 
Um, these are all as of 2018. And finally, on the right, uh, uh, you can see the contrast between Didi uh, in China uh, and licensed taxis. So licensed taxis have become a very small fraction of, uh, these are number of drivers, so the number of drivers operating traditional taxis in China has become very small. So this phenomenon of uh, the digital economy taking over and big digital platforms developing is by no means confined uh, to advanced economies. There are many examples in developing countries. So some examples, uh, I just mentioned the Taobao villages in China, three in 2019. Uh, these are villages, these are not agents. Uh, there are 490,000 online shops okay, by 2017. Uh, there is Indies in India, Wonder Labs in, in, in Indonesia. So these are freelancing, online freelancing uh, platforms that connect talent to tech projects. Asugu in Nigeria, uh, connecting experts to businesses in Africa. Crew Pencil in South Africa, Tutorama in Egypt, connecting tutors to students, uh, Yandex in, in Russia, connecting again drivers to demand. And there are many other examples from developing countries. And of course, you may ask at this point, you know, how big is this new economy? So there are many such firms, but many of these firms are small. Some of them tend to be very big, like Airbnb. But, but how big is the gig economy uh, as a whole? And of course, it's hard to, to obtain reliable estimates because to a certain extent, this gig economy operates very much like the informal economy. So it's hard to, to have reliable estimates. Uh, one of the challenges is that many of these freelancers that connect to, to digital platforms also hold a traditional job. So for example, in the US, it's been estimated that two thirds of the freelancers use fr freelancing to supplement uh, their main, the traditional job income. Uh, so the current estimate is that worldwide, the share of people who are engaged exclusively in this type of freelancing is estimated around 0.5% of the global active labor force. So if you take into account the people who do that as a second job, then this number is substantially higher. You get up to 5%. But if you, if you focus on those who do that exclusively, then the, the, the percentage is much smaller. And in developing countries, it's around 0.3%. So these numbers are, of course, tiny. They're still very small. But the point is they're growing, and all this is, reflects developments of the last three years. So it's all very recent. So what are the implications of this phenomena that we see in developing countries? So most importantly, that's the point I want to make all along, is that they change the nature of work, and they change it in a way that make it much more similar to what we have observed in developing countries for all these years. Uh, what do I mean by that? So the labor markets are much more fluid. Uh, the self-employment is on the right, so many of like drivers, for example, many of them are self-employed and they provide their services by connecting to a digital uh, platform. Uh, just like workers working on informal jobs, they don't have long-term contracts, they have no benefits, and there are substantially fewer regulations. Okay, so these are, uh, these are uh, commonalities between the formal and informal sector. Um, what does this mean in terms of social protection? Uh, the... In most advanced economies, the, the formal wage employment contracts have been the most common basis for social protection. And uh, uh, here I'm thinking of insurance, minimum wage, health insurance in the United States, severance pay, and so on. But the fact that uh, the, the nature of work is changing 
and that these long-term contracts and the stable employment uh, relationships with one particular employer are, may no longer be present means that the demands for social protection are over time going to shift from employers to the state. So this is something that, as I said, applies to many advanced economies and there is enormous anxiety surrounding these developments. But importantly, I think they also represent a, 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 this unexpected convergence between developed and developing countries because the gig economy blurs the lines between formality and informality. There is one important difference that in principle these digital platforms are registered. We know of them. They're supposed to pay taxes, although um, there are many legal ways to avoid taxes, and that's, that's a different issue I will come to in the end. Uh, but uh, at the same time, the challenges that, that workers face, workers who participate uh, in advanced economies, are very similar to the challenges that informal workers face in developing countries. And by challenges, I mean that um, there is uh, high uncertainty, there is no job security, there is no social protection unless you have this formal employment uh, contract. But at the same time, you have the benefit of higher flexibility, and this high flexibility is valued both by, by firms and by workers. And so that may, we may be at a point where it might be useful to, to rethink the approach uh, towards informality in developing countries. And what I mean by that is the following. So, so policymakers in developing countries have traditionally tried to curb informality, but at the same time, Political economy concerns have dictated very strong support for the small and medium-sized enterprises. And as I said earlier, this is in contrast to the advice that they often policymakers get from from economists. Economists emphasize the benefits of size, the benefits, the benefits of economies of scale. Um, and so now we are at a point where, thanks to technology, thanks to digitization, it may be possible to completely eliminate tax evasion because everything becomes feasible. So one of the most undesirable aspects of informality can in principle be eliminated. Um, so uh, traditionally, as I showed you, informality and self-employment were considered to be the sources of uh, small size and inefficiency. But to the extent that these new technologies allow these small agents, these small firms, or these individual agents to connect to big digital platforms, to the extent that this happens, maybe this can become a source of productivity and efficiency in the future, rather than being a source of inefficiency. Uh, so, and if you think about this new economy, and that's the positive interpretation of it, it would combine the efficiency advantage of large firms, so the efficiency advantage of the big digital platforms that in fact can uh, exploit economies of scale not just uh, within the boundaries of one particular country but worldwide with the flexibility that's afforded by the short-term work. And that flexibility is, can be very valuable not only to, to workers but also to firms when they're uh, hit with adverse shocks. So this is the positive interpretation of the current developments. Now, what's the uh, one? You know, one more one more thought on the positive interpretation is that if you think about all these issues from the perspective of a development economist or from the perspective of the World Bank, 
there is one, uh, another thing to point out, that developing countries may actually have a comparative advantage in this new economy. Why? Because people in developing countries are used to operate informally. They're used to operate in this informal economy. So, so, so some of the challenges associated with this new economy, where people are faced constantly with uncertainty, with the, with the need to adjust, to find a new job tomorrow, and with a lack of, of uh, social protection, all these things that, that are an enormous source of anxiety in advanced countries are taken, are, are the, the starting point in developing countries. And this is not to say that these are desirable features of this new economy. This is just to say that developing countries may have a comparative advantage in the sense that people are used to dealing with them. So this is you know, the, the positive aspect of this new economy. What are the new challenges? What are, what are the potential uh, pitfalls? So perhaps the most important one is social protection, that uh, we, are, we are faced with a new system where the social protection is no longer afforded by employers. And that raises many questions about how social protection systems should be designed in advanced countries. But again, for developing, if you think about developing countries, most of them don't have a system of social protection. We are not talking in these countries about replacing an employer-based health insurance system or employer-based benefits with an alternative. We are talking about uh, countries, settings, where there is no social protection, period. In many cases, in some there are. So in such a setting, it would be perhaps uh, easier to start from scratch and design social protection systems that are designed especially uh, uh, with, with this new gig economy, with these flexible arrangements uh, in mind. A second challenge is taxation. And uh, uh, in principle, uh, with, with the digital economy, uh, everything becomes visible. Um, you can tax everyone. You can eliminate one of the most undesirable aspects of informality, the fact that people don't pay taxes. But it would seem unfair and also counterproductive to tax the small uh, uh, firms or the individual agent who connect to digital platforms when the digital platforms themselves avoid taxes by shifting profits across countries. So that, that calls for... Uh, uh, the, 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 many of these issues are well known from the issues uh, regarding the taxing of uh, the tax treatment of multinationals, but the emergence of digital platforms makes these issues more pressing than ever before. And finally, um, and I will leave you with that, there are also very important questions regarding competition, the nature of competition and the market power of these large platforms. So in principle, and this is the, the usual trade-off between scale, between size, and uh, uh, the, 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 the efficiency gains arising from the scale and the market power the scale implies. Uh, in, in principle, these digital platforms can be an engine of growth for many developing countries, and they can contribute to more efficiency, but at the same time, uh, they, they have enormous market power. And how do we deal with, with this in the next few years uh, is going to be uh, quite important uh, in terms of uh, in, in terms of um, the gains from, uh, in terms not only of, re of realizing efficiency gains, but also in terms of how these gains, these potential gains from efficiency are going to, to be distributed across the economies. So uh, I will leave you with this, and uh, thank you very much for your uh, attention. Um, I hope I gave you some things to think about, and what I talked about towards the end, I, I realize is rather speculative, but uh, one can only be speculative when one contemplates the present as opposed to the past. So thank you again.
So, very, a lot of uh, material for thought, a lot of food for thought. Um, we have time for maybe two or three questions. Can you please, shall we start from there? Introduce yourself and please be brief. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> um, thank you for your um, convincing study about um, formal and informal sector efficiency. As a um, as, um, World Bank chief economist, you must care for the world economy more than most of us. But the world economy, it seems, it seems that's not encouraging. Yes, <clears throat> in the past 70 years, the, the U.S. produced most tax, economic textbooks. And um, even China has tried their best to study the world economics. But tr President Trump, who is now visiting London, making a lot of trouble. And, uh, <clears throat> and yes, he's, it seems that he didn't like the economics. My question is that, who is wrong? The econ economist or President Trump? Thank you very much. Yeah, by the way, I'm from Central Party School, the top school of Chinese Communist Party. Thank you. Thank you. I'm now a visiting professor here. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. I thought it was very inspirational. And I just, um, I'm an LSE student here, and I just have a question on the um, impact of gig economy and informality on the investment of human capital. Um, do you think that um, potentially because um, with the rise of self-employment that all these workers have this type of zero-hour contract that there will be a lack of incentive for the firms to invest more in training these workers and potentially in the informal sector as well, like the firms will be less likely to invest in these workers because um, they are not under labor market uh, regulation protection. Thank you. Uh, Malcolm Dean, uh, exit The Guardian. I don't know whether it got across what coverage it got in America, but over here, Penelope, the House of Commons uh, inquiry uh, into uh, media inquiries into those big American companies that are ripping off a, the countries that they're working in because they make their headquarters in minor European capitals in a rented room and those companies were Amazon, Google and the dreadful US coffee shops. Did that penetrate? <laughs> <laughs> all of us should avoid those. It's all but the degree of working conditions in Amazon, which has had lawyers everywhere to try and stop being exposed, but have been exposed, was just desperate. The degree they were being squeezed, those workers, was just absolutely outrageous. And I'm a bit out of touch now with what's happened to all those inquiries and where are we at the moment. Um, yes, let me try to answer some of these questions. So about Trump, I mean, President Trump versus economists, um, I won't put it this way. I'm sure there are some economists who, who may support uh, President Trump's policies. As you know, economics is a very broad field, and uh, people have different views. As someone point, pointed out once, it's the only field you can think of where in the same year, three people got the Nobel Prize 
in finance, two of them saying exactly the opposite. One saying markets are efficient and one saying markets are inefficient. And that's because there are many different perspectives to a question. <laughs> um, regarding your, your question about human capital, I think you are absolutely right. I mean, in general, one consequence, and that's also related to, to your question about how workers are treated. Uh, in this new gig economy, the big fear is that uh, uh, firms will, you know, those benefits that firms traditionally provided to workers, you know, some of these benefits are in the form of insurance or pensions, but, but some were in the, in the form of training. This will simply disappear because you don't have a long-term relationship. So this calls for essentially people taking their fate into their own hands. And what I mean by that is people have to uh, make sure they have the, the right training uh, themselves. So it, it's an economy that, uh, frankly speaking, I think it's much tougher on people, on individuals. Uh, in my view, that's part of the reason we are experiencing this worldwide backlash <laughs> against uh, everything, against globalization, against technology. Uh, uh, it's because it's tough on individuals. It, it calls for not only constant retraining, but constant readjustment, constant rethinking of where you are. It used to be the case, people were always asked to adjust, but usually it took generations. Uh, or sometimes people would change jobs within one generation. Now they're, they're asked to, to, to change careers uh, every few years. So this is much tougher on people. Um, and that also calls for a different type of education. So rather than investing very deeply in certain skills that you may need during your entire career, uh, you may invest more in basic foundational skills and then the ability to adjust very quickly. So uh, I think it it's going to have very profound changes on, on education in the long run. And, you know, regarding the, you know, the worker conditions and... and uh, uh, as I said, I think this is, these are very big issues that, that we'll have to deal with. Um, so both in terms of, of uh, worker rights, uh, but also and if we don't expect uh, uh, firms to provide them, then the state has to step in. Um, that's, that's one uh, obvious conclusion in my mind. But also if we're going to ask people to make these adjustments and these investments, it's also important to make sure that uh, firms are taxed. Um, that said, you know, given that I'm at the World Bank, and as you said, I do care about the world economy, uh, my point is that all these issues that, that, that seem horrendous challenges for developed economies, this is the reality in developing countries. It's always been like that. People face horrible working conditions where they work. So, so for them, it's actually not in transition to, 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 uh, to, to a more challenging world. It's a world that they are very used uh, in, in confronting, and, and that actually may represent a very unlikely source of comparative advantage. Fantastic. I'm afraid we have to close. I hope you join me in thanking Penny for this fantastic lecture. And thank you for thinking about it.